1: Hello, you're listening to Babbage, our weekly podcast that dives into the world of technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukie, a senior editor at The Economist. And coming up on this week's show, the veteran technology investor Bill Janeway will discuss how artificial intelligence and big data will transform the world, much as electricity once did.
2: Just as during the 20s, building out the electricity grid meant that by World War II, Every company that had survived the depression was an electrified manufacturing business.
1: Also, a supplement to blind people's walking cane could now offer new help to the visually impaired.
0: They can switch a button that says, I want you to be in chair-finding mode now. And at that point, the device begins buzzing when it detects an empty chair.
1: And
3: will explore a
1: silent war
3: in mapping that's happening across the digital world. Even though we're not exactly sure why, Tesla bought a bunch of software from Mapbox last year. And it's probably the digital rails to run their self-driving cars.
1: But first, as artificial intelligence moves from research labs to everyday operations of business, what will be the impact on productivity and can we measure it? With me today to discuss this is Bill Janeway. For three decades, Bill has been an investor in technology startups at the private equity firm Warbur Pincus. He's also the author of a book called Doing Capitalism in the Innovation Economy, the emphasis, of course, being on doing it as someone who puts his money where his mouth is. So, Bill, welcome.
2: Thank you, Ken. Great to be here.
1: AI seems to give this huge promise in terms of progress and productivity, but productivity is very hard to measure. You recently wrote an essay about this, quote-unquote, productivity puzzle, How do you answer it?
2: The obvious and presenting issue is a slowdown in the growth of productivity observable particularly over the last seven or eight years but going back perhaps as much as 20 to 25 years. And it's observable across all of the developed economies of the world. That has led to arguments on two different levels. One level is measurement. Are we just missing something because not just AI but the digitalization of the economy over the last two generations may be distorting the reality that we imperfectly and always have imperfectly tried to measure? But at the fundamental level, there's another argument. One side of it is represented by Bob Gordon, great economic historian who says, we're done. Innovation is over we've had it, and we have headwinds in the form of demographics and of debt that are just mean, slowed down forever.
1: And on the other hand,
2: there's a different approach which is represented by the remarkable empirical work at the OECD in Paris and also at the Bank of England. The OECD last autumn published a report called The Best and the Rest, and it suggested that across the members of the OECD, those developed countries, the best performing companies, the top 5%, have maintained consistent high growth in productivity right in line with what we've experienced since World War II. But the rest, from the 90th percentile on down, have not been able to capture the gains that the best have got. Now, That raises a very interesting question, which was pointed up by a scholar named Chad Cyberson. Cyberson, looking at long-term charts of productivity growth, noted that in the 1920s, at the time of the great boom funded by the great Wall Street bubble that exploded in 1929, We also had a slowdown in productivity growth at the same time as a transformation in the economic fundamentals, namely, electrification, was taking place. Here's a simple way to think about it. In 1920, if you're a manufacturing business, and manufacturing was a much larger part of the economy then, if you wanted to electrify your manufacturing plant, You had to buy generators and motors and hire electrical engineers from MIT and do it all yourself. By the 1930s, all you had to do was plug it into the wall. We spent those 10 years building out the electricity grid and enabling the fastest decade of growth in American manufacturing productivity in history.
1: So what does this say about AI and digital technologies? And also, what does this say about productivity?
2: Today, we're going through a similar kind of transformation in the infrastructure-accessible to the rest. What we're seeing is that through digitalization, the generation of data, the use of the data, through machine learning and AI, the best keep getting better. Historically, there have been three channels through which the best firms grow to dominant scale. Economies of scale in production and distribution, economies of scope, and third, network externalities. But now there's a fourth one. Those factors which are driving the growth of an Amazon mean that the Amazons of the world, the Facebooks, the Googles, are in the position of generating more data, which improves the quality of the algorithms that they bring to the data. This is the positive feedback loop at the frontier of AI.
1: This fourth feature of competitive power after scale, scope, and network externalities, does it have a name?
2: I don't think it really does yet. People are calling it AI, and the people who are doing it understand what's driving this positive feedback process. Now, there's one offset, because just as during the 20s, building out the electricity grid meant that by World War II, every company that had survived the depression was an electrified manufacturing business. Today the equivalent of building out the grid is the cloud. Amazon Web Services, Microsoft Azure, Google's competitive offering provide not just the commodity processing and storage of data, but increasingly thicker and thicker analytics capabilities.
1: So, Bill, I am really torn about whether I should be positive and optimistic about this or pessimistic, because on one hand, in electrification, the power generation and and network was all a public utility, and so there was fair and non-discriminatory action around it if you wanted to be a user of electrical services. On the other hand, what you're pointing to is a world in which people can plug in AI into their company in the same way that you could plug in electricity through the wall socket and power your company. So, Bill, are you an optimist or a pessimist?
2: Well, I hope I'm a realist. I do think that the power of the platform companies is such that over time, forms of regulation may emerge. Now, nobody invented the idea of the regulated public utility. That evolved over generations. And there was a competition between public ownership and private ownership. There was a huge battle about it. I don't think we're going to have anything like, you know, nationalizing Amazon Web Services. But I think we're going to see a debate emerging. And one place it will emerge is delivering the broadband, the real big broadband web interconnections that are necessary for being able to run big data analytics, AI and machine learning.
1: Are we seeing any impacts of this at the moment?
2: There's a very interesting map you can find on the Internet look at the relationship between, in the United States, the bandwidth delivered and available to per capita income on a geographical grid basis. And you will find that there is a very direct correlation between per capita income and bandwidth available. That means, of course, that the rich who can take advantage of the bandwidth to get more access to more learning, more education, more opportunity, have their own positive feedback loop versus the poor.
1: It is also geography. Rich people are in urban clusters.
2: But if you go and look at Cleveland, for example, in the urban cluster, if you go and look at New York, there is the same pattern within the urban cluster. I'm not talking about urban versus rural. I'm talking about electoral districts. Right. Right. Voting districts.
1: That is absolutely fascinating. Bill Janeway, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Ken, it's always a pleasure to talk with you.
1: Bill's essay is called, quote, Which Productivity Puzzle? Unquote, and it's available on Medium and also via the New Babbage blog at medium.economist.com. Next, for the visually impaired, one of the most useful tools while on the move is the walking cane. But this essential piece of hardware could be reaching the end of the road as new technologies offer potentially greater assistance to those who need it. Matt Kaplan, our science correspondent, joins me now on the line to tell us more. Hello, Matt.
0: Hello, Ken. How's it going?
1: It's going very well. The cane, the the, the white painted walking cane that visually impaired people use, it's been around for a while. What is the upgrade?
0: The notion was... If you use a cane and you're trying to find something in a crowded room, the cane will get you to the said object. So a a classic problem that students run into who are visually impaired is finding an empty seat in a lecture theater. So the team at MIT who got involved with this said, well, wait a minute, could we set up a camera that could analyze objects in a space and scan them and then send some sort of a signal to the user to say, there's an empty seat?
1: Fascinating. So what sort of signal do they send?
0: That's one of the key problems that a lot of past technology has had for visually impaired people because the initial idea would be, well, send some sort of auditory signal. But if you're visually impaired, then your sense of hearing is pretty integral and you don't want some newfangled gadget messing with it. So this team said, well, why don't we try using vibrations across a bit of the body that really isn't involved with navigation, the abdomen. And so they created a belt with vibrating motors in it. And if, for example, the person wearing it was to walk towards a wall the front vibrator in the center of their abdomen would begin to vibrate gently and then ramp up the vibrations as they approach the wall
1: wouldn't it be frustrating cuz every time you go to the refrigerator it's going to be sort of signaling to you you're going to be heading towards a wall
0: yes and that's where the new technology really takes off because the users of this device have an interface with braille characters on it that allows them to signal to the device what kind of mode they want it to be in so if the person is walking down a hallway and would rather not bump into walls, they can set the system to be in wayfinding mode. I am walking down a hallway, please buzz if I get close to a wall or a, or a door frame. Similarly, they can switch a button that says, I want you to be in chair-finding mode now. And at that point, the device begins buzzing when it detects an empty chair. Similarly, if you didn't want the thing to buzz when you're near a fridge, then you could set it in that way too.
1: Now, Matt, what about the fact that when people suffer the loss of one sense, the other senses become so much more heightened that it allows them to compensate for it in certain ways, and hence the walking cane is used effectively by blind people that would be less effective by people who weren't blind and had to try to use it themselves? Is there a risk that if we adopt this technology, to support people that they'll lose their ability to use this heightened awareness of the other senses to support themselves?
0: That is a really good question. And being not visually impaired myself, it's a very difficult one for me to answer. Uh, With that said, the new system does not impair in any way someone's sense of hearing, and in fact, it goes out of the way to not even interfere with tactile senses on the face and the hands, because it's stuck under the shirt around the abdomen. So I don't think that such a sacrifice is being made, but it's going to need to be run past a lot of visually impaired people for that judgment to ultimately be made.
1: Okay, Matt, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure, Ken. Finally... It's likely that if you own a smartphone, like everybody does, and travel around, you will have used your digital map to help you in a recent journey. But which map did you choose? With Google Maps for iPhone, helpful information is only a swipe or a tap away.
3: Follow your
2: heart. Download the new OS Maps app and get outside.
1: Behind the scenes of the world's digital infrastructure, a covert war is underway to claim dominance in the mapping industry. With me to discuss why the technology is so important is Hal Hodson, our technology correspondent. Hi there, Ken. Hey, Hal. Mapping has gone from something that has been peripheral to our lives to something that is now central and core to almost all economic activity. But as you pointed out in your article this week, there is a silent war taking place, invisible to most people. Describe to me what's going on.
3: The lead player is probably Google. But that dominance, which started in about 2004 and really has peaked in the last three years, is slowly starting to be challenged by a number of small startups that are finding different and new ways to gather the data that's needed to build a modern map. So
1: how do small startups compete with this behemoth?
3: A really good example is Mapbox, which is a company that started in 2012 in Washington, D.C. Originally, their business concept was to provide maps for humanitarian aid. But what they realized is by offering a really high quality software development kit, which is basically if you want to write apps and you want to map in them, you use Mapbox's software development kit to put those maps in there. And whenever anyone uses an app that has been built using Mapbox's software, Mapbox gets a little bit of data about where that app is being used. And when you scale that up, all of a sudden you've got 150 million GPS traces from all over the planet feeding into your servers and you can use those to make your maps much better.
1: But I don't understand because Google has created the Android operating system, surely Google
3: could do the exact same thing. Oh yes, and Google does do exactly the same thing. The trick is how can you compete with Google in any way when they own the platform? Really, you know, it comes down to the fact that Apple and Google own the smartphone platform. Even Facebook has this problem. And what's clever about Mapbox is they found a way to compete with Google to the point where, even though we're not exactly sure why, Tesla bought a bunch of software from Mapbox last year. And it's probably the digital rails to run their self-driving cars. So what are digital rails? So you gather a very large amount of GPS data and you do some clever machine learning on it. And what you get are these precise lines that show you where the lanes of roads are and how cars move along them. And that's really important because the driverless car doesn't actually know how to drive. It's not a human that can navigate its way through the world. What it does is just follow a line on the road. And so if you don't have those digital rails for that driverless car to follow, it's going to be much more computationally intensive for it to find its way through the world.
1: So some maps are being used by human beings. Some maps are being read by AIs. What is the business implications for this technology?
3: Well, on one side, the maps that are being read by human beings, the probably the best way to make money with those is what Google is doing, which is serving ads right in the map. If I punch in directions to Central Park, Google might you know, know that I like a coffee at this time of day and say, hey, Starbucks is offering two for one. You and your friend can go and get some lattes there on your way. Here's the directions. And that's currently about a $3 billion business for Google. On the other side, which is really the much more exciting side, in my opinion. You're talking about building a whole new layer of digital infrastructure that everything from self-driving cars to drones to delivery robots need to move around. And we don't even know how valuable that market's going to be yet. Some banks have made some estimates in the sort of 20 billion range. But, you know, that's kind of just speculation at this point. But it's definitely going to be big money.
1: Now, the interest in mapping became so great in the German automotive sector that a series of car companies got together to acquire the company here for having its own mapping infrastructure did it make sense for them to get into the actual undergirding of mapping or should they have been a purchaser of services of other companies?
3: I think it made sense because they need to get a foot in the self-driving car game. And what hasn't really been appreciated yet is that maps are absolutely core to self-driving cars, just as core as the rails are to a railway. You cannot have a self-driving car without a high quality map.
1: But if you're the Erie and Pennsylvania railroad company, you probably don't own your own steel mill. you buy your steel from a supplier. Wouldn't it have made sense to look for the low-cost supplier in a competitive market?
3: Quite possibly. And here has remained an independent company. I think it's more that because we're at such an early stage, there's an opportunity to own a large amount of the market. And I think that's what the German autos are trying to do. If we stick with the railway metaphor, Google's trying to build the rails and the coaches and the engines and do all the labor to lay the rails. Google's trying to do it all. And that's a threat to the car companies because if Google can do the whole thing in a really integrated way and they also have a platform the smartphone to deliver the service to people who want it how on earth will the German autos or any auto company compete with that so that's why they bought here
1: hmm so mapping is more important than I would have thought
3: well I think so I think that it's part of a trend of data services starting to become more important than the physical objects which collect the data and require it to run
1: that's a very powerful thing you just said Hal, thank you very much thank you Ken Sadly, that is the end of this week's Babbage. We have over 100,000 listeners of Babbage, and what we'd like to do is expand the listening pool still. So if you like the show, we ask first that you rate it on a podcast app and also that you share it on social media. If you have any thoughts about this week's show, you can email us at radio at Lastly, if you like our journalism, please consider subscribing to the newspaper at subscription.economist.com. In London, this is The Economist.